Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Today, sitting in with me is Batya Ungar Sargon, and we're going to talk about the State of the Union. We all watched it and what lessons can be learned. Some protests going on in Oklahoma over proposed laws related to LGBT rights and whether Governor DeSantis in Florida hates education for black people. That's right. And we are so excited to be joined by two brilliant guests Jason Nichols, the senior lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland College Park, and Ben Weingarten, deputy editor for Real Clear Investigations. Welcome to you both. We're really excited for this one. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm always excited to be on the debate. (laughs) Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much. We're going to start with the State of the Union. Last night was President Joe Biden's second State of the Union address. So the address was full of a lot of like solidly bipartisan goals and accomplishments, for example, bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., something I think we could probably all agree is really important. But he also managed to anger a lot of the Republicans. There was some pretty intense heckling, especially around the topic of the border. And then when President Biden suggested that some Republicans want to defund Social Security and Medicare. So we wanted to discuss this question of decorum and civility with you guys. What did you make of the heckling? Was it a horrific breach of etiquette or fair game? Let's start with you, Jason. Uh, I think it was a mixture of both. Uh, I think uh, we should be able to vocalize, you know, uh, when we disagree with something, something that we consider egregious. Now, what the president said was absolutely factual. So I don't I don't really get the Republican uh, outrage. I know you can say, hey, that's just one person's proposal, but it's also the second most powerful Republican in the Senate. Uh, from Rick Scott, who made a proposal that that's what they want to do, in addition to in terms of Medicare and uh, Social Security. Also, Mike Lee, who was looking around like, oh, my God, how could he say that? Mike Lee is on record saying that he wants to get rid of the Social Security and Medicare. So, again, I I think it was factual. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to do as a country on some level is to get back to our traditions and our tradition is that we are gentlemanly in that during the state of uh, the union, you disagree by not applauding and you stay seated while the other side gets up and they applaud in agreement. And, you know, the shouting each other down, that's, you know, something that happens in other countries. The United States, we always saw ourselves as above that. And I I think dragging us down uh, in that way, uh, really, you know, it really makes us kind of look and it eschews a lot of uh, tradition that I think was positive, you know, with our politicians, the fact that they had some sort of collegial uh, respect for one another. But it mimics what's going on on the outside, you know, saying like we, you know, we're, we're a divided nation, unfortunately, and that's the kind of behavior you're going to get. Uh, so I'm kind of in the middle with it. I, I think, you know, every now and again, groaning or something like that is fine. Uh, the shouting people down and calling them liars, which seems to pretty much happen from Republicans. Uh, I think it's a it's a bad precedent. So, Ben, I want you to address both the decorum question of how that made you feel and also Jason's commentary. You know, is it fair to say that, you know, <clears throat> Republicans want to do something if it's really sort of mostly one Republican who wants to do it? Go for it, Ben. So, I mean, on the decorum point, look, I'd obviously love if we were a polite society that did not engage in, you know, the kind of rancor that we've seen repeatedly in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, I find it funny, obviously, this coming from Democrats, you know, it wasn't Republicans who have pushed for 
sort of the breakdown of, you know, kind of traditional um, you know, etiquette in these sorts of situations. You know, obviously you had Nancy Pelosi infamously rip up Donald Trump's speech. You had Democrats throughout the Trump presidency during State of the Union addresses howling, uh, not participating, walking out in some instances. And, and I think I agree with Jason that this is a symptomatic of where we are as a society. I wish we weren't there, but I think it's entirely to be expected that this is where we are and that the traditional uh, rules, you know, the kind of morality that governed how we acted in these public situations, you know, is simply a reflection of where we are, unfortunately, again, mm -hmm. as a society. Now, I will say also that if you really want to go back in history, I mean, you had representatives caning other representatives on the floor of the House. So, you know, it's not right. like there hasn't been a rancor and discord before. It's obviously regrettable, but I think it's completely understandable. And again, you know, this kind of pearl clutching, I think, is pretty disingenuous. You know, when you have we're going to talk, I guess, soon later about occupying of buildings and such. But this has going, been going on for decades. And it generally, by the way, hasn't been you know, people on the left, on, on the right who have been you know, active in trying to take over buildings and getting in people's faces. You know, we can have a debate about that and what the historical record actually shows. But I think this is kind of much ado about nothing and sort of a, a focus that shifts away from, I think, the substance and merits of the speech, which to me read in kind of an amazing way as a juxtaposition to President Biden's speech at Constitution Hall in Philadelphia, you know, where he basically called up to half the country domestic terrorists, or that's how we took it anyway, uh, or would be domestic terrorists. And then in this speech, he's, you know, reaching out and deferential, and I'm going to be Mr. Bipartisan. So I think this was a 2024 presidential speech as opposed to a 2022 get out the progressive vote speech. Um, you know, as for one man and how much that man has power in the U.S. Senate, we could probably debate how much sway Rick Scott has. I mean, obviously, Mitch McConnell You has... named him. Joe Biden wouldn't name him. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's not just him. It's Mike Lee as well and, and a few others. But, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know that that, you know, the fact that a couple of U.S. senators, we can, again, you know, debate how much power they have within their caucus and the like. But I don't think it's a widespread view among Republicans <clears throat> that uh, we're going to mess with the social programs. It may have been in the past, not so much anymore. Donald Trump, who whatever you think of him, was the representative par excellence of the Republican Party, even though the establishment did not treat him as such and don't believe in him as such, certainly took the position that these are off the table. It's kind of their political third rails. And I think consequently, you know, I understand the howls on that, but there are also howls on other issues that President Biden raised uh, that I think were certainly questionable what he was asserting. Certainly the, certainly the border was one of those. I will I will say this. According to the Nichols standard, uh, all of the Supreme Court justices were opposed to everything because <laughs> they neither applauded nor stood just to, you know, watch out for how we define things. No, but Jason, you know, I find myself really torn on this. OK, on the one hand, look, the whole project of the debate is let's talk to people we disagree with. Let's talk civilly. Let's try to understand. Let's be friends, not just despite our differences, but maybe because of them, you know, let's grow closer because we have these differences. I very much believe in that. On the other hand, when I watch Parliament, it is way more entertaining <laughs> than the U.S. Congress. And look, I cover local, you know, city council and, you know, county commission meetings. And the philosopher in me likes the deep erudite discussions when they happen once a year. Uh, and the uh, entertainment talk show host in me loves the calling out of the other people and attacking them personally because it's 
democracy is proxy warfare, right? I mean, we really don't get along and we agree to this civilized process for resolving our differences. There's something kind of honest about yelling at each other and heckling and catcalling to a degree, it seems to me. Am I wrong? So, again, I think groaning or throwing your arms up in the air, I think all of that is kind of okay. But I think at the same time, and part of the reason why I mentioned the tradition, as Ben was stating, yes, people did get caned, you know, uh, nearly to death and have to, you know, leave Congress for, for many years, you know, over the issue of slavery. But that did happen. You know what I mean? So that's why we got to this kind of gentlemanly and gentlewomanly uh, way of behaving ourselves in Congress, because we recognize that that was not productive. And these people are supposed to be working for the American people. I think now it's all kinds of grandstanding and, you know, people walking down the halls with white balloons and yelling liar and all this kind of stuff, you know, because they want to troll. It's like Congress has gone from actually thinking about issues debating them, discussing them vigorous, vigorously to trying to get cable news hits, to trying to go viral for something, uh, rather than actually doing the, the work and bidding of the American people. I, I think that yelling, again, this is one of the things, you know, Bati and I were, were actually in Arizona once, and we had this, we gave this speech, and I think one of the things that I was trying to get across is the problem with the news industry is that it's not so much about informing. It is about entertaining. You know what I mean? Like it is too much entertainment, I think, rather than getting down to the nitty gritty. And I think now that's seeped into government where we want to entertain. We want to get our, our, you know, our base to pat us on the back and look like we're fighters rather than actually getting things done and actually working together and recognizing, yes, we have differences, but as the president said, we're all Americans. But there are some people who would prefer division. They prefer to yell at each other. They prefer to, you know, go viral and, and end up on whatever late cable show you want to be on and rather than, you know, understand our tradition of civility and actually doing what this show does, which is bring people together to actually iron out our differences. Well, there's all kinds of ways to make the news, right? You can wear white fur or lemon Assault on my eyes. I'm not quite sure what some of the different things that were being worn last night were. But, um, you know, Ben, you, you make a point when you say that obviously there's a contradictory message. This goes back to President Obama. On the one hand, very, very partisan. On the other hand, wanting to appear conciliatory and bipartisan and let's get along and work across the aisle. And we've seen, you know, uh, President Biden has picked up that same dualistic presentation. You mentioned what he said in one environment versus what he said in the State of the Union. But can't you make an argument that the State of the Union in its ideal, okay, I'm not sure it's ever accomplished that, but the State of the Union in its ideal is supposed to be a place where you present something that both sides theoretically could agree on, that both sides could see as reasonable, that I'm not saying I did that last. I'm just saying, shouldn't that be the goal, even if we know that there's these deep divisions, that it's a kind of a healing moment, a leader moment for us? A president ought to speak for and represent all Americans, even when he tells Americans or cohorts of Americans things they don't want to hear. All that said, it just ringed to me as totally disingenuous if you're going to say. And of course, the president has tried to create this distinction of MAGA and ultra omega or maybe ultra ultra MAGA and the like, whatever the, the moniker is today. It just rings as disingenuous and hollow when not only do you have 
that contrasting rhetoric of casting your political foes as not only wrong and evil, but dangers to the country who ought to be pursued, by the way, using the full power of the executive branch and then the legislative branch and then private sector companies themselves. You know, and I'd point out, by the way, on that point, a small one, you know, President Biden talked about policing and needing to be improved, policing standards need to be improved to ensure there's a rule of law. Okay, and do you include the FBI in that when the federal law enforcement is weaponized against people and violates their rights or creates that appearance? Do you believe they ought to be also subjected to that standard? But I think to your broader point, yeah, absolutely. The State of the Union should be an address to all Americans. You know, a president at his best can even make his foes concede that I disagree with his points, but they're grounded in reason. There's merit to them. Even if I disagree with those reasons and it upsets me greatly, I can understand where they're coming from. It just rung hollow, not only in contrast to his past rhetoric in any number of scenarios, but then also the policies themselves. And I would argue Jason would probably cheer this on. I would obviously not. But I would argue that Joe Biden, in contrast to his rhetoric and record in basically 50 years in Washington, has probably been the most, in my view, radically leftist president that we have ever had, arguably. And maybe that's kind of a reflection of where the Democrat Party is in and of itself. I'm not saying it's as transformative as an LBJ or a Barack Obama or an FDR, but I would say that the policies put forth have clearly broken from past the kind of Democrat establishment standard and the own standard that he has set. So, yeah, how are you going to unite people when you take a slew of policies that are so antithetical to the views of Americans and then you call up to tens of millions of Americans, you know, Nazi-esque or bigots and racists and you can you conflate and equate their worldview with a bigoted worldview and then say, but I really want to bring everyone together and unite us. And I hope you get on board with my agenda. I, I just it just rings as totally hollow to me. Jason, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, well, first thing I would say is uh, I, I think there's an old saying or maybe it's a new saying. I don't know. But it's, uh, you know, men lie, women lie. Numbers don't. And he's passed 300 uh, bipartisan bills. We got infrastructure done. This is something that the last administration absolutely talked about. And if you want to put yourself in the same category as people who were, you know, calling to hang Mike Pence or breaking into Nancy Pelosi's office or into her house, or you want to put yourself in the same category as, uh, you know, white supremacists outside of Baltimore that tried to, that want to blow up you know, the entire city. If you want to put yourself in that category, then go ahead. But I don't think that's what that's what Joe Biden is referring to. He's referring well, to I, very I, I, extreme I, whole, whole civility here. You know? um, well, if you're going to smear me, yeah, though, I, I'm not I, I, I just want to be clear. I was not okay, I'm not putting right. myself in any category. I just think that the president has by more than implication. OK, so what I'm saying, Ben, is I'm not saying that you were putting yourself in that category, you know, and, and I, I honestly wasn't referring to you. I was referring to people who somehow take umbrage with him actually talking about the extreme dangerous element that is out there in our democracy. Not about you, Ben. We're here having a having a, a civil conversation and in no way am I trying to smear you. Uh, but I will smear people who are doing extreme things. And I think that's what the president is talking about. He's not talking about the Trump voter you know what I mean? Or the guy who says, you know, I don't like Joe Biden. And as far as reforming the you know, law enforcement, I, I agree. That's the only kind of law enforcement he can reform is federal law enforcement. 
That's the only thing he can do, particularly unilaterally. So I think one of the things that he was talking about with law enforcement, by the way, law enforcement that is investigating his son searched his, his private residence. It's not like, and if that had happened, we know how Trump would have responded on whatever social truth or whatever it is that he's on. Uh, but Joe Biden accepted it and he's accepted these independent investigations. And, and I believe his son's going to go to jail. And, you know, so I think he's been very allowed for uh, law enforcement to be independent and has also called for certain reforms and wants those reforms to be extended to uh, local law enforcement. Final well, word, I mean, Ben, on this topic. <laughs> yeah, obviously, we could spend multiple episodes on the FBI and DOJ. So let's set that aside. I just wanted to say on the the aspect of, you know, Joe Biden's talking about a select few and not trying to smear with a broad brush anyone who votes Republican. Here's where I'd say the pedal hits the metal here is let's talk about, for example, uh, election laws. The president's basically said that if you believe in voter ID or a whole bunch of standards that you know, I believe and millions of Americans believe ensure the integrity of an election, that that is somehow uh, commensurate with or tantamount to new Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Eagle, as he put it, and the like. And he's basically drawn a line from I'm an, you're an election integrity supporter to you are from the Jim Crow South or a supporter of the Jim Crow South and the like, and try to extend that to you're a neo-Nazi today, a racist, a bigot, et cetera. So if the view is that having to show voter ID, taking that position makes one a racist, then he has smeared millions of people in that way. And so that's kind of what I'm responding to, not just his claim that those who were at the Capitol are insurrectionists and threatened the entire existence of the Republic that day, and that that's what all Republican voters are. What we're going to do is we're going to pivot just a little bit. You already mentioned it, uh, Ben, that this kind of connects with another topic that's in the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Occupy Oklahoma with regards to protests related to proposed LGBT restrictions here on The Debate at Newsweek. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back on the debate, uh, talking with Jason Nichols and Ben Weingarten. And as we kind of foreshadowed a little bit, we have an odd situation going on right now in Oklahoma where protesters in favor of particularly uh, transgender rights or LGBT rights are kind of occupying. A couple hundred people have occupied the state capitol and they are at the very least demonstrating and protesting. The question is, is it any more than that? And the comparisons here have been made between this behavior and January 6th. Uh, of course, I remember back long before in, uh, you know, Wisconsin, you had people occupying their teachers uh, over the governor at the time and some of the issues there. But my question is, 
to what degree are these fair comparisons that a group of people shows up, takes over a public space, chants loudly, but doesn't appear to be committing any crime, particularly. They're certainly not defacing or attacking or anything like that. They're just loud. Is that or is that not fair to compare that to what happened on January 6th? Let's uh, since we kind of were already in this vicinity a little bit. Let's start with you, Ben. Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of the comments that have been highlighted in the reporting on this were to some extent tongue in cheek, like from libs of TikTok, who I guess has outed herself now. All that said, I've written publicly pretty prolifically on how I think January 6th overall has been distorted and the minority of a minority who did engage in behavior that was universally condemned, by the way, within hours of it happening, were not representative of the tens of thousands of people who did come to Washington, D.C. that day, the hundreds of people who were on the Capitol grounds and then got into the building who did not engage in violent behavior. And I think uh, have in many instances been railroaded by law enforcement. Even the ACLU and others have acknowledged that as well, which is interesting. Um, you know, so how direct are the comparisons? I mean, I think I'd let the facts speak for themselves. Clearly, there were people who committed crimes and were charged with assault uh, and various other charges with respect to January 6th. I do think it is worth noting to your point, you know, like you said, in Wisconsin, there was the occupying of buildings. I think that was labor related at the time under Governor Scott Walker. You've had during Supreme Court confirmation hearings, uh, this sort of activity as well. You've obviously had it on college campuses. Uh, my alma mater, Columbia, infamously had occupations of buildings. Uh, so I think kind of the one time that Republicans or those could be associated with Republicans engaged in it and a grant, of course, at the Capitol and regarding an election, you know, that was used to, again, I would argue, condemn an entire movement. And the raising of this, I think, is sort of a tongue in cheek you know, was what occurred on January 6th truly an insurrection? Did the republic hang in the balance? Did these people who, by the government's own account, weren't even working together in some sort of concerted fashion to try and you know, take over the country and thwart the presidential uh, handover and certification and the like? Uh, you know, we could get into the merits of all that and these arguments about it. But I think most of the, from what I've seen, kind of tongue in cheek rhetoric about this is, that January 6th has been overblown as the republic hanging in the balance and that this was somehow equivalent to, as Democrats like Chuck Schumer argued, you know, 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or the throes of the Civil War. I just think it strands credulity. I think that's factually the case. It's shown in the court filings associated with a lot of the prosecutions that have taken place. So do I think that they are equivalent events? No. And I think the facts speak to that point in terms of arrests and property damage and the like. But do I think that this is a response to the idea that an insurrection took place and the Republic hung in the balance and the people are blowing off steam by asking, is this insurrectionary behavior? And do I think that's going to be raised every single time there's an occupation of building going forward? So, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, we, we have this question of the comparison, I guess, Jason, when I look at what's happening in Oklahoma, I don't mind. You know, I don't mind a group of people showing up, being loud, being public, you know, First Amendment right to assembly protest. I obviously mind it when they engage in property destruction or worse. Uh, so it seems to me like this certainly doesn't rise to that same level. But is it intimidation? You know what's going on at the Capitol? I don't know. What's your take? So, you know, uh, in my community, what we call it when someone goes into a building that they're not wanted in protest, it's called a sit in. 
So for me, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's, you know, that, you know, of course, what they're doing is not a sit in. They're being loud or they're, they got their flags or whatever in a public building, you know. Uh, so I, I think that there is a, a difference there, but it's not comparable to uh, January 6th. And, you know, again, I think a lot of people get upset with this term insurrection. And January 6th was absolutely an insurrection by definition, an insurrection is a violent uprising against an authority or government. That's exactly what happened on January 6th. And I don't necessarily think, you know, every insurrection is bad. I teach every semester about slave insurrections, you know, because they were violent uprisings against an authority or government. And, and I don't think all insurrections are bad. I think this particular insurrection was bad. And it was an attempt to stop the wheels of government from turning, from uh, the peaceful transfer of power because people somehow with no evidence decided that this election was fraudulent. Even though all of the legal means had been exhausted, they found an extra legal or illegal means in order to stop uh, the government from functioning at that time. Now, I think, again, when people bring up the Civil War, the whole point is that the Civil War uh, was a time when even though there was a group who literally split off from the United States, they never got into the, the U U.S. Capitol, never caused that kind of destruction. And I think to downplay it also is disrespectful to the 120 police officers who, who were injured and some very badly during that, what I would say is an insurrection. And I think, again, by definition, not by, you know, what people may decide insurrection means today, but insurrection, a violent uprising against a, an authority or government, that's exactly what occurred. I think what you're seeing in Oklahoma, at least my understanding, and I agree with Ben that, you know, maybe this is done tongue in cheek, like, hey, look at these people with their liberal cause and they're breaking or they're in a building. And, I, and you know, it probably is tongue in cheek, but I don't think that that you can really make a serious uh, particularly with some of the things that have come out through these prosecutions, you know, people like Elmer Stewart Rhodes and, and many others, uh, the fact that there was significant planning, that people had arms close by and, and zip ties and bear spray and all kinds of things. Uh, I don't think you can compare that to some some people with, you know, rainbow flags running through the halls. And we, we've seen other situations where that didn't get as much uh, attention for example, what we saw in Michigan, where people showed up armed to the Michigan State House and actually threatened lawmakers. Um, so I, I think you can't really make the comparison. I think when you start using violence and intimidation versus this is a public space and I'm going to sit here and make my voice heard and maybe I'll get taken out by law enforcement. And, you know, for any activists, sometimes that's a point of pride, honestly, when you stand up for something and you actually do get taken in by the authorities. I think that's very different than what we saw on January 6th. Uh, so in that regard, I think Ben and I agree.
And so I want to see if I can get you guys to agree on something else, because the comparison, I think, that um, for a lot of people comes up when talking about January 6th is the BLM, the Black Lives Matter riots of the summer of 2020 after George Floyd was murdered. And from the right's point of view, an argument you hear a lot, especially from sort of regular people, is we spent six months watching the Black Lives Matter movement and its sort of outgrowth, destroying American cities, burning cities to the ground, two hundred billion dollars in, in property damage, hundreds of people were killed, and that a message was sent by the way that that was simply tolerated. That you know that there is a standard for dissent, a standard for uh, you know for civil unrest that that then a few 700 800 took advantage of on january 6th and were treated very differently so that's kind of the right wing point of view that i've heard a lot of now on the left the, the view you hear a lot of is if black people had done what was done by those 800 people in the Capitol on January 6th, they would have been mowed down. I mean, that there's simply a different standard for how police interact with black people and that watching that, watching the grace that these these um, rioters were granted within the Capitol was very difficult for a lot of people in communities of color. So, first of all, I'm curious if you guys agree with me in my assessment of the, the crux of the debate and then also. I'm wondering if I could get each of you to acknowledge any kind of justice or that you could see why the people on the other side see it that way. If you think that there's any justification, Jason, if you think there's any justification for people saying, look, there was so much more damage created by the political left and it got so much less coverage, almost none. And Ben, I wonder if I can get you to acknowledge that there is a difference in, you know, how certain communities are treated by the cops, especially in these kinds of events. Let's start with you, Ben, and then we'll go to you, Jason. There's so much to unpack there. It doesn't lend itself to a tidy answer. Um, I do think that you accurately characterized to an extent kind of the position of conservatives on, you know, what we see as a double standard with respect to January 6th, not only, of course, through the coverage of it, but in terms of how the legal system has dealt with cases, people being held in pretrial detention in some cases for not only months, but years, uh, many of them charged with nonviolent offenses. Uh, I think you can get some unanimity probably between us on the fact that law enforcement and police forces, both at the local, state and federal levels, act poorly sometimes and abuse their powers and that that threatens you know, the very glue that holds our society together. I think we probably disagree on the nature of it, the extent of it, what we see as the instances reflective of problems within policing. I don't believe that police forces generally are systemically racist, which has been used to argue that when black cops go out and act poorly against individuals and violate laws, uh, that they are somehow reflective of a systemically racist system. I think that there are people who abuse their power for any number of reasons. There's obviously also even just psychologically a thin line between cops and robbers, between those who go into policing and those who are criminals as well. This is why, you know, as a conservative, I believe so strongly in not only the rule of law, but when people abuse it, that they ought to be held to incredibly high standards. And I would argue there's another double standard there in terms of who actually is held accountable versus who gets off scot-free. So we might broadly agree that there are uh, double standards. We probably differ on where we see the double standards, to what extent we see those double standards. 
but I can certainly understand why people on both sides feel almost to a religious extent compelled to act out in certain ways, which, by the way, I find to be totally reprehensible. I don't even like the idea of occupying a building or the like that to me, it's just antithetical to who I am and how I was raised. I do believe, obviously, in the right to petition and assemble peaceably and the like. But I myself, I don't go out and protest, let alone engage in violence. I do so through the pen and through my word. That's how I express myself. Uh, And I certainly believe that everyone should be held to account. And that's why, again, those who acted out on January 6th and did break the laws, I think, ought to be held to the law to the fullest extent possible. And again, there's been pretty much universal agreement on that. Jason? So I I agree that there are issues within law enforcement. I, I think we certainly agree there. I, of course, I think Ben is correct that we're, we're not going to agree whether there's systemic racism, uh, institutionalized racism within policing at any level. Even, you know, one of the things we'll probably, we would probably agree on are problems within the FBI. The difference is, I would say that the FBI has had its problems and, and been corrupt for a long time, going back to the civil rights movement. So, you know, again, I'm not going to say, oh, my God, it's Trump you know, that messed up the FBI. They hate Trump. You know, I'm going to say, you know, that the FBI has always had issues. The CIA has always done some things that uh, I think are, you know, immoral. If we're talking about individual FBI agents or individual CIA agents, absolutely not. I don't think they're bad people. I think that sometimes the system can corrupt people. Uh, and that's what we're saying about policing. So, yeah, we're, we're probably going to disagree on uh, systemic and institutionalized racism being the root of, you know, some of the violence that we've seen. And, and you know, I could I could go through and give you a whole lecture about how Memphis, for example, you know, desegregated its police force in 1948, but didn't desegregate its schools until 1961. So obviously, They were okay with black cops basically operating in the same way that white cops did, but they didn't want their kids to go to school together. So I think that there is certainly, you know, that issue. And I can understand in terms of about these uprisings. And again, one place where we might agree, if you wanted to call what happened in 2020 insurrections, I could be okay with that. I could agree with that. Like I said, I don't think all insurrections are bad. It's bad when you have no evidence. And one of what we saw in 2020 and what black people have been saying has been happening, but has been gaslighted by the system and especially by the right is no, no. Yeah, we saw you die on camera, but eh, whatever, you know. So I think, uh, you know, there was a, a reaction to that. I also think there were provocateurs and, and there's evidence that there were provocateurs in some of those crowds. Now, again, 93 percent of those protests across the country after the murder of George Floyd were peaceful. Uh, I went to a few of them. I spoke at a few of them and I never saw a rock thrown. I never saw a police officer shoved. I never saw anything. And 93% of those the people who've done the statistics have shown that they were largely uh, peaceful. Uh, now, January 6th, it was one event, one complaint, and it exploded And the people who said back the blue all of a sudden were beating the hell out of cops. Um, So, again, I think a lot of people are honing in on the uh, hypocrisy and the contradiction there. And a lot of, you know, the fact that it was the federal government. I mean, this is like 
the House of Representatives. You know, this isn't a McDonald's in St. Louis. This is like in Washington, D.C. This is the federal government. And, you know, you're hanging up gallows, talking about hanging politicians and people with swastikas on. I mean, it, it was jarring for a lot of Americans to see that in the seat of democracy. And I think that's what a, a major difference was. You know, uh, one thing that I love about the way uh, Batya kind of framed the question is just kind of becoming aware of how somebody else perceives a double standard or an inconsistency and then recognizing it, whether you admit it as valid or not. You know, the first step, right, is at least being able to see how they see it this way. You know, affirmation and validation that can come later on down the road. When we come back, you guys have both written uh, some fairly interesting pieces for Newsweek. I don't know that we're going to have time to get into all of that, but I definitely want to get into it as much as we can here on The Debate. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. I'm Batya Unger-Sargon, and I am here with Andrew Talman, my co-host, as well as Jason Nichols and Ben Weingarten. Um, this has been such a great debate. Um, we're going to move into the next topic now, which is over at Newsweek, we had um, a written debate in which, Jason, you participated about uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida's decision to take issue with a curriculum that came out of the College Board that was a proposed curriculum for African-American studies for a course for high school students. Florida contended that the curriculum sort of flew in the face of the Woke Act, which prevents indoctrination. Um, but you argued that, no, it was actually him trying to silence what was a completely legitimate curriculum um, in terms of African-American studies. I was wondering if we could start again with this common ground question. I was wondering if you could each say, you know, two things you think an African-American studies course must include in order to qualify as such and two things that if it included it you would feel that it was not appropriate for high school students um so why don't we start with you jason because you already wrote on this and ben you can start thinking up your four elements uh while jason goes <laughs> so uh let me let me understand this you want two things that an african-american studies course should have in it that you would feel is not appropriate for children as well, that you would feel it was legitimate to ban it over. So I'm going to start with the banning thing. I, you know, okay. I'm not really in favor of banning academic concepts, particularly for students. You know, when we're talking about it's, it's college preparatory, like they're going to get, you know, this is like for like college credit, like AP courses. Also, this is something that's elective, like not every student in Florida has to take this and they have other AP options that they can choose. 
if you're, you know, if you or your parents, you know, disagree with the, the curriculum or, or what's taught in African-American studies, you have every right to say, that's not what I want to learn or that's not what I want my child to learn. I think that's perfectly fine. You know, because this is not something this is not something that's forced upon kids. It's not social studies or something. Then perhaps we could have a debate about, OK, maybe that's that's a little more controversial. That's something that we should have, you know, at, at the college level. But if you're going to choose an elective course, I think there should be concepts that you can discuss. And one of the things about African-American studies is that we don't tell people what conclusions to come to. That's not how, how it works. The whole point or a large part of it is critical thinking. So, you know, I've had students, some of my best students have been very conservative. You know, I have a lot of students who grew up in traditional, you know, who have immigrant parents, grew up in traditional African homes or traditional Asian homes and, and are very conservative. And you know what? They learn to make good, solid conservative arguments. Um, so, Jason, your position is that there is nothing that could be included in that course that would ever make you say this is not appropriate for kids. Is that is that your position? So I'm really trying to think of something that would I mean, you know, African-American studies is, you know, it's not pornography here. Like we're, these are academic concepts. I can't see how an academic concept would be damaging to someone who chooses to learn that kind of information and, and to uh, think about it critically. Let's get Ben in here. So Ben, I'm sure you have, you can come up with a list of things and then we can throw it back to Jason and see if he would agree with any of them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we ought to set the context here. And yeah, I thought about this a lot before we you know, came on here about kind of what would be, where would Jason and I fundamentally differ? And let me go from that to kind of where, you know, my four responses or at least two or four that I might have. I think our differences probably come down to what we see as the purpose of education broadly. Then from that, what curricula ought to consist of. Then in my view, a distinction between what colleges ought to teach versus what ought to be part of a K through 12 education. And then I also think there's a public and private distinction here. I know that's a lot of different buckets and it's very broad, but where I come down generally is I think that if we want to teach about African-American history and culture, which I do believe that we should, those can be included in American history. And to the extent and my reading of the academic literature on African-American studies, there's an inherent activist element to it. Ethnic studies itself is not part of the traditional education uh, sort of rootedness in you know, America. Ethnic studies have generally been from a left wing perspective. They put forth a perspective that I believe is more about indoctrination and activism than education in facts about what's transpired. And here are the competing historical accounts of what transpired. And here's the secondary sources, which, you know, a conservative historian says this and a left wing historian says this. That was not, as I understand it, and let's be clear, the college board kept this curriculum kind of hidden until it was leaked to a couple publications. That was not what was originally in this curriculum. So I guess my first starting point is I don't like the idea of ethnic studies in K through 12 education generally, because I think it is a proxy for and conflates studying about histories and culture with indoctrination in a particular ideology. That's number one. Then number two, I know Jason says this is an elective and you know people are free to choose essentially, but still as a taxpayer, 
you are being compelled to, if your state has these Mm -hmm. courses in schools, you are essentially saying, I'm promoting this with my tax dollars, even though it might violate all of my principles. And if I perceive this as a course, and by the way, this course originally, the curriculum, it may still have it in what was released, uh, produces works from scholars who say that colorblindness, the concept is actually racist. And then you're going to draw a conclusion from that to, well, if someone says that I believe in content of character over color of skin, that that's really a cop out, a dodge, and that's some kind of dog whistle and the like. Or, you know, as the Stop Woke Act says, I mean, what's its purpose? If you look at the language, it talks about no individual should be treated in these courses as inherently racist, sexist or oppressive, consciously or unconsciously by virtue of race or sex. Bottom line, when public funding is implicated here, of course, our representatives have a right to voice their opinion. And I think there's a compelling case to be made that the College Board has essentially tried to do an end around here and in other subjects, by the way, of what state and local authorities as representatives of the people want in their curricula. So, yeah. And I think we've kind of at least I can draw out some of the between the two of you, what you're saying, something that uh, maybe focuses the question a little bit, because on the one hand, Florida requires the teaching of black history. And on the other hand, the College Board has come out with apparently we don't have the final version yet, but apparently a revised set of standards, I guess, that will get rid of a lot of the things that Governor DeSantis objected to. To me, the it seems like we would all agree that kids ought to learn about black history as part of history, clearly. That, well, in fact, so, that's part of Florida law. That's is, right. Is that's that part people? of the law. Right. The, the real question uh, that the focal question for me is, should black or African-American history be an AP subject in high school and at what cost of other things they would be learning? Jason, you think, yes, that's essential. So first of all, I think that you all may have a misunderstanding of what African-American studies is. I think Ben has a little bit of an understanding that it is more than history. You know, I think a lot of people just want to learn a bunch of Googleable facts uh, rather than academic concepts with academic rigor. Sure, you can learn, you know, black history in elementary school, in middle school and even in high school. And I think that there are certainly important things. Uh, you know, black history is absolutely incredibly important to the American story, certainly in Florida, as is Native American history and many others. I just think, first of all, African-American studies, you know, involve so much more. It's much more interdisciplinary. The other thing is, I think it's a really interesting argument to make about as a Florida taxpayer, I shouldn't have to pay for this kind of education. So some 80 year old person in the villages who has no children in schools gets to dictate what, you know, uh, is taught in the schools. I think it's problematic. And that's the same argument that has been made against conservatives who have talked about prayer in schools. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, they, they've said that. And then people who oppose it say, no, I'm a taxpayer. You know, I don't want prayer in schools or I don't want the Pledge of Allegiance in schools or what, what have you. And conservatives have made the exact opposite argument. I personally think that uh, African-American studies like, you know, European studies, you know, European history and culture and, and many other cultural studies that you have out there are meant to go not just to teach historical facts. And again, I don't think Ron DeSantis wants to get rid of uh, black history. I really don't think that. I think he wants to pervert it. He wants to change the context around it to make it some sort of, uh, you know, make Dr. King into racial equality Santa Claus 
rather than the radical democratic socialist anti-militarist person that he was. You know, everybody can talk about content of character. Uh, that's the one quote that every right wing person I know knows. Uh, but they don't talk about, uh, you know, what Dr. King said about land grants and things that, and homestead acts that were given to whites and not given to black folks. We had a lot of conversation about that around Martin Luther King Day as well. You know, are we being honest about who he was? Fellas, completely out of time. So interesting. Uh, ben Weingarten, Jason Nichols, as always, fascinating conversation. Obviously, we could go on for quite some time, but thank you so much for joining us. Always good to have you with us, Batya. We'll see you next time on The Debate at Newsweek. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. <laughs> It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.